Hey, this is Kyle Eidelman from Southeast Christian Church, and I'm going to thank you for listening to the message today. As we open up the scriptures together, I pray that this message inspires you, challenges you, and is the right word at just the right time in your life. Enjoy the message. In the 1960s, a Stanford professor by the name of Walter Michelle did an experiment that has been legendary in uh, psychologist um, uh, literature ever since. And it went like this. He did it on four and five-year-olds. He brought them one at a time into a room, set them down at a table, and on the table there was one marshmallow. And he said, okay, I'm going to give you a deal. You can eat this marshmallow if you want, but if you can wait 15 minutes, I'm going to go in the other room. If this marshmallow is still here when I get back, you can have two marshmallows. Choice is yours. They understood it. He left the room. They kept a camera on in the room to see what the kids would do. It was really funny. They said to watch what happened. Some kids just ate the one marshmallow right away. Others like were staring at it and fidgeting and playing in their chair, trying to distract themselves and eventually ate it. But still others resisted the temptation, waited the entire 15 minutes, which to a four-year-old seems like forever, and got the two marshmallows. But the biggest part of the experiment was still to come because they tracked these kids for decades. And they wanted to see, is there anything about the willpower a four or five-year-old has that leads to willpower later on in life? And the results surprised even the researchers because they found that the kids who at age five years old could resist the temptation to settle for one marshmallow were more successful in like everything they could possibly measure later on. There was lower drug use among the two marshmallow group. There was lower obesity. There were better social skills. In fact, one of the easiest to measure things when they compared in high school the S. SAT scores of the two marshmallow kids to the one marshmallow kids, these kids outscored these by 210 points on the SAT. It seemed the secret to everything in life and success in every measurable area was simply this one thing, self-control, which is both fascinating and discouraging. Because it kind of confirms the way a lot of us see life and a lot of our experience, right? That self-control is either something you're born with or it's something you're not. We see people who have self-control with money and self-control with eating healthy or with their phone or with prayer habits or with their temper on the pickleball court. And we think that must be nice. (laughs) We're going through, I'll put these in my pocket and try not sit on them later. We're going through the fruit of the Spirit as listed in Galatians chapter 5 of the Bible. And we've spent weeks talking about all of these different traits, but today we come to the last one, self-control. So much of the self-help world focuses on self-control. So you can find influencers and books and podcasts that'll talk about self-control with fitness or self-control with money or self-control with addiction, with eating, with time management, any number of things. And really throughout history, leading thinkers have talked about this thing called self-control. I'll show you a few old quotes. Epictetus said, no man is free who's not master of himself. Plato, the first and best victory is to conquer self. Leonardo da Vinci, one can have no smaller or greater mastery than mastery of oneself. Teddy Roosevelt, with self-discipline, most anything is possible. And my favorite, personally, Navy SEAL Jocko Willick said, discipline equals freedom. There is no shortage of a desire for self-control. There is some area in your life where you long for more self-control. 
Here's the challenge we face with this one particular part of the fruit of the Spirit. This is the one, I think, in the entire list that we've talked about in this series that we want the results of, but we don't actually want the fruit itself. Like we want the results of self-control, but we don't actually want to practice self-control. The picture I have is going out with some friends after church for ice cream. No one wants to sit there being the one loser not eating ice cream while everybody else is eating ice cream. But we all wanna step on the scale the next day and look down and see a number that represents us having not had ice cream. We wanna go on a nice vacation, we just don't wanna budget to get there. We wanna be well rested at night, but we don't wanna turn off the TV. We want a good marriage one day, but when we're single, we wanna hook up. We want the good grades, but we don't wanna study. We want obedient toddlers, we just don't wanna get off the couch to discipline them. The fruit, this fruit is unique in that we want the results of it, we just don't want it in and of itself. The way I say it, I think of it as this, we don't want self-control, but we do want to have had self-control. Right? I believe this is where Jesus offers a unique perspective on self-control. Because when it comes to self-control, a lot of us have beat ourselves up over our lack of it. A lot of us have resigned ourselves to just thinking, I just don't have it, at least in that area. But the scriptures say you do. And Jesus offers a unique path for you to have it. Remember what Kyle said from the jump in this series. This is not about self-improvement. It's about spirit empowerment. So if the fruit of the spirit is just about trying harder, no thanks, I'll tap out. But if there is something different, if there's something deeper that the way of Jesus offers where by being connected to the vine, I can have self-control in a way the world doesn't offer, I'm interested. So if you've tried self-control and fallen on your face, you've given your best effort and it's not enough, if you want the results of self-control but don't actually want self-control itself, Scripture's gonna teach us something today that will lead to a counter-cultural way of thinking and living that bears great fruit. Now, before we get into the Scripture, we have to talk about grace. Normally, when I preach, I like to end with grace because that ties everything together from every Scripture we would ever talk about. But today, I think it's important to start with grace and making sure that as we approach this idea of self-control, that we have our grace glasses on, that we're looking at everything through a grace lens. Grace means Jesus gives endless second chances. He picks us up every time we fall. If we have a posture of humility, grace is inexhaustible. It's free, it's endless, it's yours. It's available because of the goodness of God, not the goodness of you. And here's what grace means when it comes to self-control. It means when I inevitably fail at having self-control, I don't throw in the towel and give up because I have grace. So even though I failed, I am not a failure. Even though I stumble, Jesus never does. Even though I give up, Christ doesn't give up on me. When I lose my self-control, Christ picks me up. He forgives me. We give it another shot. So we have to have our grace lens, our grace glasses on as we talk about self-control. Or the risk of a sermon like this is it will come off feeling like this. Go try harder. Which is not the message of the gospel. And that will put on us a burden that Jesus doesn't want us to carry. So we have to have our grace lens on so that when we fail in this, we can keep going. All right? We're going to look at Galatians 5 and 6 today in the Bible. 
If, if you know or have been paying attention, the list of the fruit of the Spirit is in Galatians 5. We're going to look at the scripture before that and directly after that to see what it can teach us about self-control. The first thing we'll see is a spiritual truth that explains your experience. Galatians 5.16, so I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that, that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. Now, you know this scripture, don't you? You feel this. This is... Well, I should really go to bed, but that last episode was a cliffhanger and I'm really tired and have to get up early in the morning. So let's just watch the first 10 minutes of the next episode to see what happens. I promise we'll turn the episode off after that. <laughs> this is, you're on the diet, but the coworker offered to pay for lunch. It would be bad stewardship not to accept it. This is, that real is funny. I mean, if somebody else was walking over your shoulder from church, you wouldn't look at that, but, but they, they're not here. It's funny. This is, you promise not to gossip, but it's true. <laughs> See, there are two forces, what the spirit wants and what the sinful nature desires. There is a war inside you. It's repeated throughout scripture, Romans 7. There's another power within me. It's at war with my mind. James 4, what causes quarrels and fights among you? They come from the evil desires at war within you. So catch this, when the Christian talks about self-control, we're not simply caring if you eat the dessert or not. It's much deeper than that. Satan is fighting for your soul, meaning the stakes are huge. Self-control is about who are you becoming as a soldier for Christ in the war against evil. If it's just about you becoming the best you, whatever, go listen to a good podcast. But God's called you to a mission to seek and save the lost, to be an integral part of the church, to be a prayer warrior, to sacrifice so that others can find life. So when the Christian thinks about self-control, we're not running from a past version of ourselves. we're running to the mission of God. When the Christian thinks about self-control, we're not talking, can you simply have a better morning routine that's more fulfilling? It's can you be the best missionary for the gospel of Jesus Christ you can possibly be? I'll give you one example. I love 1 Corinthians 9. Paul wrote this, don't you realize in a race everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize. So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to dominate Notre Dame, an amazing football game on Saturday night. I mean, is that not what it says? They do it to win a prize that'll fade away. Years from now, that game won't matter. But we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete. I train it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear after preaching others, I might be disqualified. Here's what Paul's saying. You know those Olympic athletes that we cheer for every four years and read and see their amazing training routines? They do all that for a medal. The Christian does it for the sake of the gospel. 
Every few years, you'll see a story come out in sports world about a retired athlete that kind of has the same type of storyline, and it can be male, female. They could have been a professional athlete, maybe even an elite Division I college athlete. But occasionally, you see this profile where one of these athletes that was known and loved and in, in, in peak physical condition amongst the entire human race, it seems, uh, after they retired, let themselves go. And not just kind of stopped training, but swung the pendulum to the completely opposite end of the spectrum, and they're kind of the definition now of unhealth. And when they interview these athletes, they ask them, you know, what happened? Why don't you care about your health anymore? And they say, well, I stopped training. Why'd you stop training? Well, because there was nothing left to win. That's what had me training when there was no more competition. Why train? And I kind of get it. I mean, if there's nothing left to win, why would you do what you used to do? It's one reason I love what we just read. In verse 24, Paul says, run to win. Meaning, you are in a race. You have a mission. You are on a team. So 1 Corinthians 9 says the Christian absolutely pursues being healthy. Think sleep, nutrition, exercise. But I hope you caught it. There is a difference in how the world approaches health and how the Christian approaches health. They do it for a medal. We do it for the gospel. Here's the first lesson today. If you're taking notes, write this down. The motive is not me, but God's mission. Let's just dive deeper on this physical health thing for a second. If the motive is me, that means I would... Pursue physical health for one of two reasons I can think of. Either arrogance, I wanna maybe look the best I can, or insecurity, meaning I'm fearful of what others would think or what I think of myself and I have to prove something. But the Christian, the motive is not comparison or insecurity, it's simply I need to be healthy for the mission God has given me. See, Satan would love for you to think of physical health defined by how you look. No, 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 no. It is much deeper than that. You are called to a mission which demands your all. A few years ago, I was at a one-day leadership, Christian leadership seminar with a pastor named Craig Rochelle there that some of you've probably heard of. And I love um, that he leads the church that produced the Bible app that most of us carry in our phones. And as he was talking, he mentioned just in passing about physical health and the Christian's duty in that. And he gave as a personal example this statement. He said, I haven't had a cheeseburger in nine months. And when he said that, I thought, well, I haven't had a donut in like five hours. So we're kind of the same, me and you. <laughs> but it just seemed like a coincidence. And, and, and we... we, we should not presume to know why God does or doesn't use people in certain ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? But it just seems like a pretty big coincidence that a person with that kind of self-control happens to lead the church that produced the Bible app that have helped 500 million people around the world get in God's word. And after going to that seminar, I had to look in the mirror and change some things. You are a missionary of Jesus Christ. And there is a war to put yourself first or God's mission first. Skipping ahead a few verses, after Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 6 says this, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently, humbly, help that person back on the right path. 
And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens. In this way, you obey the law of Christ. If you think you're too important to help someone, you're only fooling yourself. And I love how blunt this next statement is. You're not that important. I'm like, thanks, Paul. But look back at verse one. It's right after he talks about self-control. And he says, it's probably inevitable you will be overcome by some sin. You know, when you think about that in a Christian life, it's always encouraging and discouraging. For example, I was talking not too long ago with a couple older than I, older enough to be my parents, and they said they were going to marriage counseling. I think it was their first time going to marriage counseling. At first, that was very encouraging to me because I thought, oh, I haven't figured marriage out yet either. That's encouraging to know the other people farther ahead haven't figured it out. But immediately my mind went to, oh, that's very discouraging because I thought surely by the time I'm your age, I'd have marriage figured out. No, not till Jesus comes back. But in the scripture, we see a second difference between worldly self-control and godly self-control. Here it is. The focus isn't feelings, it's faithfulness. Worldly self-control The purpose of self-control is to do what feels good. Here's what I mean. It's self-control with money so you can feel indulgent on the vacation. It's self-control with work so you can feel the rush of climbing the org chart. It's self-control with school so when the GPAs come out, you can feel superior to other kids. Godly self-control, spirit-empowered self-control, the focus is faithfulness. It's self-control with purity so you can serve your spouse better with respect and intimacy. It's self-control with money so you can be generous to and through the church. It's self-control with pride so you represent Jesus well to non-believers. It's self-control with anger so you can have healthy relationships. It's self-control with time so you can serve at church and not just show up as a consumer. Peter wrote this, for you are free, yet you're God's slaves. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. President Eisenhower years ago said it this way, freedom is actually only the opportunity for self-discipline. So when we learn that a fruit of the spirit is self-control, we use that, we channel that to focus on conquering sin. I'll give you one example. This is why Christians try to cut out pornography and lust. If we're just following our feelings and just do whatever feels good, look at whatever feels good, right? There's lots of resources. There's, there are therapists out there who say, go for it. But the Christian knows I'm called to be faithful. Faithful to God, faithful to my spouse, faithful to my future spouse. And this is where Christian self-control is difficult because an extreme battle demands extreme sacrifice. So I was, I was so encouraged this week, I reached out to several people in our church and heard story after story of men and women and students who are fighting an extreme battle in extreme ways. I want to read you some of them. I heard of students who have just gotten rid of their tablets completely, men who have canceled the internet at their house, students who've deleted social media because it was their gateway. I had multiple of our student ministers at different campuses say they have students, we have students who not just deleted the app of Snapchat, but deleted their entire Snapchat account because that was how they looked at porn. We have men who've asked other friends to control what apps they could download, women who've confessed to their women's group, I struggle with porn and need your prayers. Students, check out how brave this one is, students who've told their parents they need help. Men who will check movies beforehand and if there's nudity, they won't even watch it. 
Women who put software on their devices that alerts a friend if they try to visit certain sites. Men who've exchanged their smartphone for a dumb phone. <laughs> Students who've given away Xboxes and Playstations because that's what they use to view porn. All of those things stink to do. They're embarrassing if somebody finds out. Why, do you, why don't you have a smartphone? You don't have internet at your house? That's crazy. But I just wanna pause and say if you're one of those men, women, students who are taking extreme measures to be faithful to God, your church is so proud of you. We love you, we respect you, we are cheering you on. And no matter how difficult the battle, God's gonna reward what you're doing. We believe that. But I would venture to say that others of us, God's kind of nudging right now. And maybe it's about that issue, maybe it's an issue completely unrelated to that, but you're thinking, well, if I dealt with my thing that, with that extreme measure, that would be embarrassing and difficult. But look at what the author of Hebrews says to us. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He says, hey, it's not like you died yet. Like you haven't resisted that much. That's how seriously the scriptures take faithfulness. This war against sin in your life, you wage war against sin to be faithful to God, even if it costs you your life. Remember what Jesus says. He says, you know, there's a, there's a road to go down and it's really broad and it's easy and there's a whole lot of people on it, but it ends in destruction. But he says, there's a narrow road and it's hard and only a few people find it. But if you get on that road, it leads to life. So when it comes to self-control, the motive is not me, but God's mission. The focus is not feelings, but faithfulness. One more lesson, and this I think is the key because it shows us why so many of us have given up. See, here's the issue with self-control, is we tried, right? We tried to attack the day early with a good quiet time. We tried to manage the calendar to spend time with family. We tried to tame our rude sarcasm. We tried and we failed. So we gave up. In fact, research shows us that self-control is just hard. Psychologist Roy Baumeister did an experiment to test self-control. He had college students come in and he had required that they fast before this experiment, so they came in hungry. They sat down at a table and in front of them were a, a bowl of sweets, a tray of freshly baked chocolate chip cookies that you can almost just smell right now, and a bowl of radishes. So he brings in the first group who's hungry and he says, hey, eat whatever you want. Of course, they kill the chocolate chip cookies, right? He brings in the next group, though, that he wants to really test, and he says, hey, I have all these snacks, but these are reserved for other people. You just have to eat the radishes only, which I don't know who snacks on radishes. Like, if you do that, don't tell people. That's weird. <laughs> but they had to stare at the chocolate chip cookies and not eat them. But the real part of the experiment came afterwards where he handed them a ge geometry problem that was actually unsolvable. They did not know that. He just wanted to see how long they would work on it before giving up. And specifically, he wanted to see, did some students having to exert self-control before this make them have less self-control on the actual test? Here's what he found. The people who could eat anything, they worked on the geometry problem for 20 minutes and said, hey, I can't do this. The people who had had to exert so much self-control to not eat the cookies, they worked only eight minutes and then they tapped out. 
And what they found, and this has since been replicated in study after study, is that self-control is a depletable resource. The actual term for it uh, in literature is ego depletion, meaning you can run out. Now, it can be built up over over time like you would a muscle, but if we only have a limited amount, how do we use it? Well, look at Galatians 6. tells us, Pay careful attention to your own work. For then you'll get the satisfaction and job well done and you won't need to compare to anyone else. We're each responsible for our own conduct. I love these verses. These will set you free if you get these inside and live these out. This has been communicated in many different ways. Dr. Jordan Peterson says, compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to who someone else is today. Pat, your Instagram post says, don't compare your behind the scenes to someone else's highlight reel. And they're simply saying what Galatians 6 says, you focus on you. Don't compare yourself to that person on social. Don't compare yourself to that person who doesn't have kids yet. Don't compare yourself to that person who doesn't have the health issue you do. Don't compare yourself to the coworker who's had that job for 25 years longer than you. Don't compare yourself to anyone other than you. Here's, Here's my real problem though. Sometimes, I compare myself to you. I do that sometimes. What I'm guilty of more often is I compare myself, see if you can relate, to an ideal version of myself that doesn't exist. And I say, well, the ideal Carl has perfect spiritual disciplines always. The ideal Carl always follows the budget. My ideal self always responds with kindness. Our ideal self disciplines the kids with perfect wisdom and love and harmony every moment of every day. And that's who most of us compare ourselves to, isn't it? This is why this scripture is so important because here's what we learn. The process is not about performance, but patience. See, a lot of us, we want self-control and we want it right now. <laughs> but this study on the fruit is on the fruit of the spirit. That word fruit stood out to me as I was preparing for this message and I just did some research on different fruits and the thing that kind of jumped out at me is related to this, you may not be able to see this, but this is an apple seed. If you want apples, you can plant this seed and you'll get them. But you know on average how long it takes between when you plant this seed and when you get to eat the apples? 10 years. All you want to do is eat an apple. You want to to bake an apple pie. You want to take some apples to your coworkers, right? Look what I grew. 10 years. I don't know if you're like me. Maybe I'm the only one, but in my walk with Christ, I have this habit. When I get convicted of something in church or a group or in scripture, and I say, I'm going to get pure today. I'm gonna release bitterness today. I'm gonna have a better prayer discipline today. And you know how long it lasts? If I'm lucky, a week. And then I fail, and then I heap guilt and shame on me that does not come from God, it comes from me, and I just wanna give up on the whole thing. But I want scripture to set you free. Because look at what it says. A good tree can't produce bad fruit. This means if you are rooted in Christ, 
you are incapable of not having self-control. And look at what the scripture says. If you remain in me, Jesus says, you will produce much fruit. Galatians 5 calls everything we've talked about in this series the fruit of the Spirit. And so putting all this together, I think what Scripture is teaching us is that when you give your life to Jesus and the Spirit gets inside you, he plants some seeds. It's a seed of self-control. And he grows it in his time. And you look at yourself and you say, well, I don't see self-control. If I had self-control, I'd have that fixed by now. And you may try for, five, try for five years and say, I keep failing. You may go a decade and say, this doesn't work. You may try to be faithful for 20 years and say, Jesus, where's the fruit? But you just keep being the branch. And you stay connected to the spirit. And one day you wake up and you say, huh, there's an apple. Where'd that come from? And I can defeat that thing through the power of the Spirit because I have this thing called self-control that may take years to grow, but Jesus guaranteed it would happen. It's not about performance. It's not try harder. It's about patience as God does his work. We say, Jesus, I'm gonna be yours and trust that you've planted the right seeds and that you're growing them. And in time, as I patiently follow you, as I walk in grace, you will grow the right fruit in me. And this is really true with all the fruit of the Spirit. When I inevitably fail, I think the way of Jesus isn't working. If it did, I'd have peace all the time and Joy, no matter the circumstance, I'd be gentle with people who don't deserve it. I'd have self-control to conquer this thing. But the New Testament just keeps using this word fruit. It's the fruit of following Jesus, the fruit of being rooted, the fruit of the Spirit. And this is why we need our grace lenses on as we talk about self-control, because if, it, if it's not grace, if it's just go try harder, well, I'm, I'm done, I'm out. But if it's just be the branch and trust the Spirit, Huh, I can do that. And you can too. But if you do not have Jesus, the obvious question should be, well, how do I get that spirit? Because if you do not have Jesus, the only way to get self-control is on a treadmill called trying that leaves you exhausted and getting nowhere. And you should give up doing that. In Acts chapter two, Peter tells us how to get that spirit. He says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, grace, you need the grace lens, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I believe what happens when you do that is seeds are planted in your soul that may take decades to grow, but it's the fruit God wants. So don't grow weary in doing good. You will reap a harvest at the right time if you do not give up. Let's pray. Jesus, we're clapping because, because we have tried. We've been on that treadmill and it's exhausting. And we, we, we just think if I, if I just would be better, if I could just 
try harder, I'd get somewhere. Jesus, forgive us. Forgive us for not looking at self-control through a grace lens. Father, I pray that you set us free from an expectation of ourselves that you do not put on us. Thank you that because we're connected to you, we can't bear bad fruit, that we will bear good fruit. It's just a matter of time. And you're gonna take us where you need us. We love you, Lord. Thank you for loving us first. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. If today's message made you realize you need to take your next step with Jesus, we would love to help you with that. You can connect with us on any of our social media platforms throughout the week or visit our website at southeastchristian.org. And if you want to hear more content like this, you can check out our sermons podcast or our one at a time podcast. Both can be found everywhere. Podcasts are available. Have a great week.